Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Here with just a, a brief show update with myself and Dr. Wang. We're really excited to announce another kind of mini series or, or focused set of episodes that we're going to be doing that honestly kind of came up sporadically, a little organically. Uh, when recently we were talking with Dr. Luke Tomich, who was just on the show, uh, talking about the work he's been doing supporting the Ukrainian neurosurgeons right now with the conflict, it really got our minds turning and thinking about how we could try to feature and, and maybe explore the role of neurosurgery in the military here in the United States. And so Dr. Wang and I are really excited to announce that for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking with various American neurosurgeons who have been in or currently are in the military in various capacities and try to get a look at what that side of neurosurgery is like, which many of us don't really get to see. Yeah, it's great, JP, because we already have had so many folks that are either in or were in the military already on. And there was a whole generation. I'm thinking back to folks like David Pauly and Reg Hade and, uh, you know, folks like that, Kevin Foley, who've been in the military. And, you know, they have so much to offer. And yet there are also folks that are in the military now. And I, I really enjoyed your episode with Luke. Uh, Luke is just a fantastic guy, amazing spine surgeon. And I'm really looking forward to uh, celebrating the accomplishments of folks that have trained in the military or are serving now. And there are a lot of parallels. We keep bringing it up over and over again, right, between what we do and what folks uh, in the military are required to do in terms of training, discipline, um, understanding of the mechanical aspects of what we do and, and what's on the line for our patients, right? Yeah, of course. And I think it, it's something I often think about, at least, because I I'm somewhat historically minded as we talk about on this show sometimes. And a lot of what we know and a lot of what we do for our patients in the civilian world is born of military experience. And it, I guess it's somewhat analogous to uh, how people argue to fund NASA, because even if there's no direct economic benefits to going to the moon, for example, there's always this laundry list of inventions that come to the public and come to the people of the United States and the rest of the world by the engineers at NASA trying to solve that problem. Similarly, if you look at the history of neurosurgery, I mean, obviously so many innovations and so much that we understand about how to treat the obvious area would be traumatic injuries to the nervous system are born from the experience of military neurosurgeons. Of course, notably Harvey Cushing serving in World War I and everything that he gave us to treat our patients who still suffer traumatic brain injury today. Yeah, I you know Steve Andra, who uh, who was uh, I think assistant director of the VA. Uh, Steve Andra used to be at Northwestern, and he was very active in the military. Always talked about DARPA, right? DARPA, and uh, DARPA is is uh, is an organization. If you haven't heard of it, you should look it up. That a lot of folks in neurosurgery have been working with, and DARPA has grants funding research. Of course, the most common analogy with us is in the brain machine interface, right? Because that's really where they're really looking at uh, maybe, you know, you could say on the, on the edge, enhancing um, military performance, but also rehabilitating folks who've been injured in wartime. And so it's, it's really a very natural uh, segue because both folks in the defense industry or military and neurosurgeons are interested in the new technology and how it can advance, um, you know, what we do every day, how we can be more effective, how we can be safer. Um, there's, there's so much rich cross-pollination in that space. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it, it's sad, but some, something I've said in the past is, you know, GBM isn't really a surgical disease. Hopefully one day we'll have an injection or a pill. And 
Um, all of these spine indications that uh, people like you, Dr. Wang, are increasingly bringing new technology to bear. We've got robotics. We have ever more minimally invasive ways to treat back pain, radiculopathy, myelopathy, but trauma will always be with us. And the wisdom of our forebears who learned how to care for these injuries on the battlefield. And as I talked about with Dr. Tomich, the uh, Ukrainian neurosurgeons who are even today seeing new novel injury patterns and uh, consequently being forced to develop new ways to treat those injury patterns, uh, this will always be an aspect of practicing neurosurgery, no matter what the oncologic or the elective side of our specialty uh, morphs into in, in decades to come. So as always, listeners, we love to hear from you. If you are in the military and within neurosurgery, please reach out to us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. You can contact us at Twitter or Instagram, any social media, but a direct email is the simplest way. If you would like to come talk to us on the show, if you have any suggestions or the, the whole audience, if there's something that you really would like to hear about and would like to get some insights on the experience of a military neurosurgeon, please, we always love to hear from you. And we're really excited to bring uh, these series of conversations to you in the next few weeks, especially with, in America, our Veterans Day coming up shortly on November 11th. Yeah, thank you for that reminder, JP. Uh, Veterans Day is coming up, 11-11, and uh, we look forward to celebrating, honoring, and remembering all of our folks uh, who have served in the U.S. military and also first responders. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I am delighted to rejoin you in the virtual world. Uh, I have been very busy with my MBA, so I've been off a little bit. And luckily, John Paul has been a wonderful co-host. He's taken over the helm, which has uh, been fantastic. I've been following and listening just like our listeners. So today, uh, we don't have JP. JP is actually at the RUN course, which is an amazing uh, offering for neurosurgical education. But I am joined by two amazing guests, okay? This is a, a very, very special interview for me because these are very important folks. Uh, they do a lot of important work for us. Uh, the first is Jared Chewy, and we have David Simons. And we're going to be today talking about some of the elements of how the military interfaces with medicine. So let me allow them to introduce themselves. Uh, Jared, why don't you go first? Uh, hi, I'm uh, Jared Shuey, and I'm a Special Forces medic. And I currently uh, work for Joymax um, Endoscopic Surgery as a clinical education manager. And how about you, David? Sure, it's David Simons. I'm also uh, currently a Special Forces Medic, uh, Baton Headquarters with 20th Special Forces Group. Um, so that makes me part-time, frees me up to have a civilian job now, uh, working as a clinical development leader uh, here in the private sector with a company called Excellus, doing robotics navigation, endoscopic, and minimally invasive spine surgery. Wow, that's amazing. So it's, it's fascinating that I ran into you guys at the NAS meeting in Chicago, and it, we had so much to talk about because, um, you know, I've been lucky enough to have the opportunity to help some folks in the military and in special operators and fighter pilots. And uh, it's, it's really a special role as a surgeon to be able to take part in, in the care of those individuals. And then you guys were both medics, and now you're both uh, in the medical industry, which is amazing. The intersections are quite serendipitous. So you guys came up to me, and we were talking about um, some of the elements that are different when we take care of folks in the military. And here in Miami, we're close to Southcom, so we get a fair number of folks from the Keys or Homestead. But 
maybe you could tell us a little about what it is like to be in the military in that role and as a special operator. And David, why don't you why don't you go first with this? I'll be happy to. I definitely appreciate it. Just out the gates, I'd like to say thank you for uh, for having us uh, because it's a tremendous form of advocacy, essentially in what it is that we are trying to do uh, for fellow service members and first responders, but. Um, essentially, for those of us that have spent a life in uniform, uh, we're used to the military system, uh, uh, medical treatment uh, system, but at the same time, also those that are also stepped into the VA world, uh, it's you know a whole other different system as well. Uh, and so in, in my instance, what I've found is, is that uh, you get very accustomed to that way, very much the way the rest of the military process uh, runs for treating folks. And so stepping into the world that Jared and I are now in the private sector has been very eye-opening. And to that end, um, more specifically, getting a chance to see different things, for example, within the spine realm uh, when it comes to more mentally invasive type treatment options. Uh, And so to that end, you can have guys like Jared and I who both have, you know, pretty strong medical backgrounds when it comes to trauma and operational medicine but recognizing oftentimes that unless you have an expertise like yourself uh, in spine, that you really, um, it's hard for you to advocate for yourself when it comes time that you're going down that road of life and all of a sudden you sustain a, a spine injury, for example. Um, and at that point in time, you're really at the mercies of hoping the other people that are going to take care of you truly do have your best interest at hand and have the ability to be able to, to deliver on that. Yeah, it's such an interesting concept, right? Because we're used to taking care of of normal humans and then occasionally professional athletes, which are different. But in the military, there are some hard stops. I remember taking care of some um, military helicopter pilots and uh, fighter jet pilots. And there were limits on the numbers of levels you could, say, fuse in their neck, right? And if you fuse too many levels, then they couldn't return to their their, uh, role in the service. And they really didn't want that. It It was a fascinating thing. You know, Jared, can you tell us a little about what you understand about these restrictions? And of course, you guys were not in the Air Force, but uh, let's say in Special Forces in the Army or in the Navy or Marine Corps. What are those kind of restrictions like? Um, So it's very similar uh, to being a pilot. Like if you are on military freefall status and it could, David, you may know, but it could be the same for um, combat diver status. Um, it's almost the exact same as being a, a pilot. <clears throat> there can only be so many levels that are fused. Um, so you have guys that will either um, suck up the the pain and the until they have some sort of uh, you know neurological deficit or and just suffer through it, or they'll have the very bare minimum uh, performed so that they can still jump out of airplanes, go dive, and that sort of thing. Um, now. Knowing some of this, I don't know how guys still jumped free fall with one level, even one level of fusion, but I knew plenty that did. Yeah, and, and there's another dimension. I mean, I, I was, I think I'd mentioned to you guys in Chicago, I had just operated on a Green Beret, and he had a, a fairly simple problem. He had a disc herniation, but he was in so much pain. And, and, you know, everybody tells us, oh, it's 10 out of 10 or 10 out of 12 out of 10, right? But this guy, when you looked at him, you just knew that the amount of pain he was experiencing every second of the day was so excruciating. And he, he was very honest with me. He said, listen, I'm, I'm probably going to get a divorce. Um, this is, and, and, you know, you guys are used to tolerating extreme pain and suffering. And when we fixed him, oh, my God, he was back to his normal self. 
So this, uh, this ability to tolerate the pain beyond what's normal, it, it might even be like an impediment, right, for this type of problem. What do you think, David? Oh, I definitely agree. And I think we kind of mentioned it when we last met up in Chicago a couple of weeks back. Um, you know, example with me was in 2010. You know, I'm sure what I know now and I can appreciate a little bit better from working on this side of the house was, you know, there's a degree of probably degeneration that was going on, particularly my cerv- cervical spine, let alone the rest of it. Uh, but basically one night, you know, we were out on a night raid uh, during one of the missions and uh, while pulling um, another soldier over a wall, I think is partly the restriction of my plates, you know, the ceramic plates that we wear as well as the rest of the kit that I felt something that felt like, you know, the, the classic hot lava pouring down, uh, from the base of my right side of my neck, down my right arm into my fingers. And, uh, to that end, you know, like Jared was mentioning, getting back home at the end of that tour, cause still trying to push through the pain, you know, getting loaded up on tour at all to go out on mission, until finally somebody, a battalion sergeant back at Bagram says, hey, you need to get back here. We're wrapping this thing up. You're not making that any worse. I'm hearing about what's going on. And um, I got back and they were getting ready. They had me already scheduled uh, to do a multi-level fusion. And thankfully, you know, not even knowing much about spine, candidly, I just happened to ask them the right questions and was pretty much told that, hey, you're getting ready to get a multi-level mm-hmm. cervical fusion done on you. Uh, that could be very much career ending. And... Um, not even having somebody necessarily to advocate for me, I went ahead and decided at that point in time to go ahead and say, I want to take the long road to recovery because I understand once you do this, uh, if it's multi-level fusion, you know, I, I don't have a chance to go backwards. So I didn't realize at the time what that seed was planting with me and the story and how that would end up changing um, many things for me and advocating for others going forward. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting to I me. Mean, both you guys have, you're, you're not just the run-of-the-mill special operators, you have medical training. Jared, what is that medical training like? What do you learn as a uh, military medic in, in the special forces about, let's say, the spine, right? Because spine pain, neck pain, back pain is so common. What, what do you guys learn in your training about this? Well, <clears throat> so I'll kind of take one step back about myself, as uh, David knows this. I started out my special forces career is actually a weapons expert, weapons specialist. Um, and I did not fully appreciate any kind of spine pain or back pain until I had some myself. Um, and I had multiple teammates that had injuries or just recovered from surgeries going on deployments with us. And then as far as our special forces training, I mean, you learn, um, fairly detailed anatomy, obviously not quite to the level in, in within the spine as, as we know now, working in, in, in the industry, um, but mainly just musculoskeletal injuries. You learn some, uh, you learn trauma to, you know, spinal trauma. You learn how to perform simple neurological exams to identify any deficits. And that's about it. Not to the level of advocating or, or different types of treatments like we're seeing now uh, on the surgical side. Yeah, I mean, do you, do you have any experience treating uh, acute spinal pain? Like, I mean, I, I imagine it must be quite common, right? What do you guys do? You give Toradol, you have steroids, narcotics. What's the, what's the routine of, of what's done in the acute setting there? So one of the things is, uh, I mean, we have access. If we're deployed, we have access to all of that. Um, you can give Toradol shots. Uh, we have access to narcotics. So it all kind of depends on what setting we're in. If we're in the U.S., um, back training, we may um, actually just send them to a local 
uh, ER or local uh, critical care facility or back to our battalion surgeon. Um, but very much, it, it can be the whole gamut from muscle relaxers to narcotics. And obviously that can be, you know, can potentially lead to certain tricky situations. In the battalion surgeon, is that usually a general surgeon, a trauma surgeon, or an orthopedic surgeon? It could potentially be uh, anything. It's kind of a position as opposed to technically a qualification, um, but quite frequently our battalion doctors, um, they're qualified as flight surgeons, but they usually have an emergency medicine background. Right. So that's an important distinction that when they say flight surgeon, that doesn't mean a surgeon like we think about a surgeon. It means a doctor, right? Correct. Yeah. There, there are so few neurosurgeons and orthopedic spine surgeons in the military. Um, it, it's just a handful, maybe maybe a dozen at the most. Um, and so it's a real need. It's a real, real problem. So, of course, a lot of the active duty folks, like I said, come to us at the University of Miami, as they do to other universities, just because there aren't enough neurosurgeons or spine surgeons in the field. So I, I imagine a lot of care gets delayed. That's what I see. People tough it out or um, they just can't take the Time or they're 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 downrange, right? So they can't get the specialty care. So so David, why don't you tell us a little about what you and, and Jared and your group have been doing? It's it's just such an exciting and inspiring project that you've started, uh, and, and give our read uh, give our listeners a little bit of background on it. I sincerely appreciate that. Um, for a long time, we realized, kind of as mentioning earlier, that the seed was being planted in our own experiences. Um, particularly around the spine, let alone other areas of the body in terms of we were seeing uh, injuries, um, the ways in which not only ourselves, perhaps many others of our teammates, uh, friends that were treating it, not necessarily the wisest way, um, to their own detriment. And so what we found was that over time, once I got into uh, thankfully, the opportunity to come in and start learning about being a clinical within particularly the endoscopic spine realm, it really opened up my eyes. And I found myself all of a sudden having people coming to me, as many do in the medical profession, going, hey, I've got this going on. Uh, who do you trust? Who would you go to? Uh, I trust you, the, you know, the sacred bond of being a medic, particularly in the military, on a team, you know, and we don't ever violate that trust. It's very, very sacred to us. Um, and to that end, to now find ourselves unexpectedly in a new role where here people are coming to us, even sometimes the battalion surgeons themselves with a background in emergency medicine going, hey, Dave, Jared, I don't really specialize in this. Who would you trust if the back was against the wall? What is it, you know, that litmus test? Who would you send somebody to, to at least be, who do you trust and who has the skills? And so essentially what happened was we just found ourselves informally onesie twosie just sending folks out and we started watching careers getting saved sometimes getting guys off different uh, methods they were using to to mask the pain uh, and their families are impacted by it so essentially what happened was uh, jared and i both lost a very dear friend of ours uh, july of last year who's another special forces medic and he'd been talking about this project with us and um, you'll actually see his face if you go to our website, uh, www.returntoduty.us. Joel Gupton's picture in memory and honor of him is on the upper left-hand corner there. Um, and to that end, basically, we said, hey, we need to stop procrastinating. We have to find a way to bring this to scale. Uh, we don't have any experience or expertise in it, but we trust that the people will come in the way. It's an invitation for people who care about this to come together. And essentially what we did was through a great group of 
uh, friends and fellow teammates, fellow service members, first responders, we came together and we formed the nonprofit Return to Duty and using that as a mechanism, as an invitation, if you will, even such as yourself joining a part uh, of this team with us for us to be able to scale this out to more people and take what we're learning in order to be able to care for this patient population because of these experiences. And, and you've extended this not just for the military, but to first responders, is that correct? Yes, sir. That's correct. And a big part with me was that I grew up in a family, you know, multi-generations on both sides. We're both military, law enforcement, going all the way back as far as could be. And when I graduated from the Citadel in 97, I actually started out as a police officer for years until right after 9-11. And one thing that I found, and Jared can relate to this, you know, guys that are serving as special forces, guys in the Guard and Reserve, you end up having a lot of our friends that they also either came from or have transitioned when they're part-time or retire. And they go back, they, they find meaningful work as first responders. And the thing that Jared and the whole return to duty staff, we kind of resonated with this is like, why are we segregating um, when we could really identify that many of the same, you know, injuries and illnesses uh, that trouble all of our service members, even those in the you know more special operations, you know elite type units, we see it at home. I mean, you know, very people that are taking care of our communities, you know, the firefighters, rescue, the police officers, and instead of kind of having this you know divisiveness, we were like, you know, this is a lot to bite off, but not doing it is not an option. We need to find ways to start bringing people together, and leveraging a lot of the talent and expertise. Uh, and just people who care about these this general patient population as a whole and being able to leverage that in a sense that we can not just help one branch of the service or one unique organization. There are ways for us to come together and to do this for all these folks. And uh, I think it's healthier that way. Yeah, you're absolutely right, David. Uh, you know, you see this also with firefighters, police officers, Coast Guard. They, oftentimes they delay the care. They're very concerned about their ability to provide for their families and be part of the team that's part of their identity. And to lose that is, is it's more than just a job, right? So I, I really applaud the both of you for doing this. Um, let's get into some of the technical elements of, of, of how we met. Uh, Jared, you work for a company called Joymax. I'm, I'm a big fan of endoscopic surgery. Joymax is one of the leading companies uh, in that arena. And and the idea behind doing endoscopic spine surgery as opposed to traditional open surgery where all the muscles are stripped off the bone. Um, I mean, obviously, you're probably biased like me. Like, do you, do you think that there is a difference in impact for folks that have to be active physically, uh, that folks that have to be, uh, you know, on duty, right? That's that's really what this is all about. Yes, absolutely. Um, before, well, David actually is the one that brought me into the industry and brought me to Joymax. Um, before I started working for them, I had no idea about endoscopic spine surgery. Um, and it is a, I feel like a huge difference. Obviously there are plenty of people that, that need a fusion, that need a disc replacement. Um, but I have known quite a number of friends and colleagues that could have benefited from a simple decompression and they ended up having some sort of open procedure and uh, fusion, which limited their their career, potentially changed their career from what they were able to do, um, and totally changed their lifestyle. And I'm a little, like you said, a little, <laughs> a little biased to Joymax and to endoscopic um, surgery. But at the bottom line, it's it's a it's a step. It's a step in care. Um, you know, you can do the decompression and later down the road, if you still need some sort of, uh, 
more advanced uh, surgery or a fusion, it's you're open to it. Yeah, certainly working through a six millimeter port is going to be very different than cutting someone's back open, right? So that that's I, I would agree with you. I think as a first step, if nothing else, and I've done that on professional athletes, and sometimes say they have back pain, and we'll clean the disc out, and they're going to feel better enough, as opposed to say committing them to a, a fusion. Um, but David, you work for Acellus now. Acellus, I was just with Kevin Foley last week having dinner with him, and Kevin Foley, uh, I believe he was in the Air Force for like fifteen years, right? He's also former military. Is that right? Yes, sir. He actually he was he was another uh, um, army um, army type. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, army, not Air Force. I apologize. No, that's okay. No, I just happened. It was uh, I'd done some reading up. You can imagine, obviously, the first time. I went out and actually did a, a cadaver lab with him in Memphis. And um, it was just an honor you know, getting a chance. Uh, we always, you know, Jared and I, we recognize that as medics, we're much more of the uh, the blue collar uh, medical professional, if you will. We're kind of serve more as the bridge between uh, the folks that are, you know, sleeves rolled up down in the trenches. And we always recognize that the, it's a two-way street in terms of that honor of at the same time trying to be as best of a professional supporter uh, to surgeons, you know, like yourself and, you know, Dr. Foley, but at the same time trying to be as relatable as possible to our brothers and sisters that are down in the trenches. And, um, but yes, um, I'm, you know, very much a fan. Yeah. I, I, I was having dinner with him and Kevin Foley, I think is one of the founders of Acellus, right? It's, it's his robot, if you will, that uh, you guys are, are, putting forward out there. It's a very exciting technology. I think that that has a lot of opportunity too. So this is really exciting. And I, I look forward to having more conversations with you folks about a lot of different things, um, pain control, how we get folks back to a normal lifestyle, the challenges that special operators face and the parallels with what we try to do as neurosurgeons. Uh, but I do want to thank you for your time. And I, I think that what we're trying to plan is for a venue for you guys at the upcoming ISAS meeting, which is going to be uh, the International Society for the Advancement of Spine Surgery. That's going to be in San Francisco uh, in June of 2023. So looking forward to having uh, more interactions with you guys and back on the podcast again. I, I want to thank you for your service. So let me let you guys make some closing remarks about what you want our listeners to hear. Remember, most of our listeners, if not all, are going to be doctors, surgeons, uh, medical students, people who want to become neurosurgeons. Uh, Jared, why don't you go first? Uh, well, Dr. Wang, thanks for uh, having us on here and, and giving us this opportunity and helping us with all of this. Um, we just want to say that, you know, you don't have to be a neurosurgeon. I just had a conversation with a friend of mine today who is a emergency uh, physician for the military, and I told him about return to duty and said, hey, you don't have to be a spine surgeon, neurosurgeon, endoscopic surgeon. We're just looking for people to get the word out there to the military community to know that there are other options besides, you know, just getting a fusion because that's all the local surgeon uh, performs. Uh, whether it's whether you're an endoscopic guy or, you know, whatever your specialty may be, uh, we're just looking to get the, the information out there and the knowledge out there because so many people do not, they just don't know what they don't know. Excellent point. And David? Yes, sir. I also echo the, the same gratitude and look forward to many more after this. But uh, there's a term, you know, we talk about this in return to duty. You know, you spend a lot of your life uh, being trained and, and going and getting the experience you do different places around the world. 
know, a big part of what we're doing is we're just grateful to be able to leverage uh, both our training, and our experience, more importantly, our hearts to be able to actually hope to be able to bring people together and making meaningful impact on all the different gifts, if you will, that people have uh, of their experiences or their resources, whatever it may be, to leverage it for this cause, you know, for the military, the veteran, for the first responder. And we recognize, you know, the DOD, you know, has its own treatment facilities. The VA has its own treatment facilities. A lot of first responders have different things arranged with their unions. And we're not here, you know, to be against any of that. Uh, candidly, we're just here to basically be complementary uh, to that. Um, there's a term that we use, uh, particularly in the Army Special Forces, of working by, with, and through uh, anywhere we go. And then that the spirit of that essentially is, is that the intent of being able to be great enablers and great facilitators. We don't have to be the end-all, be-all. Our goal is to build very strong alliances uh, with people who have a heart for and care about this mission, taking care of the people who take care of us within our communities and the nation as a whole. So um, many thanks. I love your, your mission statement, which is patriotic patient care. Uh, everybody listening can, can relate to that. So thanks again for coming on, and we look forward to having you guys back. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.